This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In the past year, museums, colleges, and other institutions turned over more ancestral remains to tribes since the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was enacted more than 30 years ago. And changes to NAGPRA aim to speed up the repatriation process going forward. At the same time, some institutions continue to use loopholes or drag their feet to keep from complying. Today we'll hear about the latest progress in honoring tribal remains. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The opening days of the legislative session in South Dakota are highlighting renewed efforts to improve relations between the state and the nine tribes located in its borders. Between gaming compacts and flag ceremonies are efforts to build communication between entities. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. During the annual State of the Tribes Address, Cynthia Allen Waddell, Vice President of the Flandreau Santee Sioux Tribe, started her speech by acknowledging the work of the State Tribal Relations Committee. The makeup of that committee was recently changed to include more non-Native lawmakers. She says the committee made an active effort to visit tribes and learn about their concerns. We welcome more opportunities to collaborate with the committee and state, so please do not hesitate to reach out. Over eight years ago, the Flandreau Santee Sioux Tribe abandoned plans to open the nation's first marijuana resort over fears of a federal crackdown. Attorney General Marty Jackley charged two consultants who worked with the tribe. Four years later, state voters legalized a medical marijuana program, and Native Nations cannabis in the Flandreau Reservation was one of the first dispensaries to open. Alan Waddell says medical cannabis is a large economic driver for the tribe. The development of cannabis is an act of sovereignty, but based on necessity. Without the ability to find tribal programs, provide housing for tribal members, and to make sure people have food on the table, the tribe cannot be independent or self-determined government. Cannabis has helped my tribe fund the gap between bare-bones federal programs and robust tribal programs, and will continue to provide a solid economic base for the tribe. Earlier in the day, Republican Governor Kristi Noem and representatives from Standing Rock and Rosebud Sioux Tribal Governments hosted a ceremony to display their respective flags in the Capitol Rotunda. Both tribes recently entered into new gaming compacts with the state. Standing Rock is increasing the number of machines from 350 to 1,000. That compact will last for a decade. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Pierre. In Arizona, the 29th annual Indian Nations and Tribes Legislative Day was held at the Capitol in Phoenix on Wednesday. The summit gathered its largest attendance with more than 1,000 tribal leaders, representatives, and community members. They discussed priorities for the new year. The Governor's Office on Tribal Relations hosts the annual event. The Tribal Relations Office supports government-to-government engagement between the 22 tribal nations and the state. Five of the largest tribes in Oklahoma are rejecting a state task force created by the governor. In late December, Governor Kevin Stitt created the 13-member task force to address public safety. 
which he says is to address the U.S. Supreme Court McGirt decision. This week, the Intertribal Council of the Five Civilized Tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee, and Seminole Nations, sent a letter to the governor opposing the task force. The tribes say after review, they conclude it would divide rather than unify and would make political points rather than seek genuine solutions. The five tribes have one member on the task force. Oklahoma's other 33 tribes also have one member. The rest is made up of state representatives. The governor's office released a statement saying it's an opportunity to partner with tribes to respond to the issue and hope the five tribes will reconsider. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Fry bread, that's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Pressure to comply with the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act paid off last year. An investigative project by the news outlet ProPublica says institutions handed over remains of almost 19,000 ancestors in 2022. ProPublica published its first piece in an investigative series a year ago today. That series built on decades of work by tribes and native institutions to highlight the lack of compliance by museums, universities, and other institutions regarding the 33-year-old federal law. Adding to the momentum is new NAGPRA language aimed at speeding up repatriations. That's the good news. The other side is the thousands of ancestral remains that institutions continue to keep in collections. We're getting an update today. Please join us. Is your tribe currently involved with any repatriation efforts? What are your thoughts on how NAGPRA works? Call us at 1-800-996-2848. You can share your thoughts, your comments, your questions on the air. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking now from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Mary Huditz. She's an investigative reporter with ProPublica. She's Absalaga Crow. Hello, Mary. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Also on today's show is Shannon O'Loughlin. She joins us from the land, the ancestral lands of the Piscataway peoples, also known as near Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. She is the chief executive and attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs, and she is also a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Welcome, Shannon. Great to have you back also. Thanks so much, Sean. Mary, 
The most recent installment in the ProPublica series, it reveals progress in NAGPRA compliance. Please start us off with the good news from 2023 that your reporting highlighted. Sure. So um, we saw a significant amount of progress this year, um, but I would, you know, temper that. And I think you did a good job of explaining how there's still yet many thousands of ancestors um, to be repatriated. Um, but we had started an investigation at the start of 2023, exactly a year ago today, um, into museums' uh, long, long practice of holding onto ancestors for a variety of reasons, um, which we dug into and had to do with, um, you know, some said that they didn't have enough money or some had simply not prioritized the work. Um, and then others, I mean, in other places, there was an absolute um, effort to withhold ancestors from tribes and their belongings. Um, but the good news is that there, the, for years, the way people talked about repatriation was that more than half of the ancestors that institutions initially reported holding um, had not been repatriated. After more than three decades of NAGRA, Congress envisioned that the, these repatriations would have happened within a decade when they passed the law in, in 1990. Um, but now, um, at least now, the uh, metric has moved, and so now um, we we are saying that it's more than half have been repatriated, which I think does change a little bit of the dialogue and tone around the work. It is just half more than half, I believe, um, maybe about 46% of more than 200,000 ancestors that uh, institutions say they've held, um, but it's it, Again, it just, I think um, the work is far from done, but I think we're moving into a, a new way of, of talking about, a slightly new way of talking about the issue. And Mary, what do you think is driving this growing momentum for repatriation? Uh, many things. Um, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, momentum, I think we all know sometimes things happen slowly in Indian country, um, too slowly. Uh, but we have had for decades um, people who may have been young at the time in the 90s but are elders now who have been working on repatriation since the beginning or even before NAGPRA's passage. Um, I interviewed a woman in Maine uh, for a recent story. Um, she's been, her name is Donna Augustine. She's been working on repatriation since late 70s. Um, so I, that's to say that there's been this long push um, happening. You know, Shannon Lachlan is on the call. She, too, has put in years and years of work. Um, but uh, just this year, I think, you know, our sources tell us that the news coverage of the last year has, has definitely helped to move the needle. It's not just our coverage. I think many, many outlets um, took the data that we analyzed and wrote their own localized stories, more than 70 local newspapers and, and stations um, across the country. And then also, as we were doing our reporting, um, consultation was underway on a new regulation um, for NAGPRA, um, which I think there's just, I think, many, many moving parts on this. Um, and they they all sort of merged, at least from my perspective, um, this last year. Mm -hmm. 
Mary, another interesting development in addition to your series and, and some of these ongoing efforts by tribes and other groups to get compliance and raise awareness, there were actually calls from members of Congress to address the lack of action by institutions with regard to NAGPRA. How big a game changer was that and did it make a significant difference? I think it did. Um, so when Congress, uh, when it was a letter that was sent um, by about 13 senators, both Republicans and Democrats. There was really the effort was spearheaded um, by Brian Schatz in Hawaii and Lisa McCaskey in Alaska um, to send a letter to the five institutions that hold the largest number of ancestral remains, institutions that we identified in our reporting. Um, and uh, those institutions, I'm glad to name them here, our uh, Ohio History Connection, Illinois State Museum, Harvard University, uh, University of California, Berkeley, um, and Indiana University. Um, so each of them received a letter saying, please tell us why you are not, you know, why this work is taking so long. How do you make your decisions? That was, an, I think, a significant amount of pressure. Um, I think I can just say, I think, some institutions were glad to answer this um, and welcome the conversation, and some were not pleased. Um, and I, I think we even sort of felt the backlash of that a little bit ourselves. Um, but um, I think well, I noticed, that press, oh yeah, go ahead. I had a chance to read that, that, that letter that came from, from Congress, or those Congress members, and it was really robust. I mean, they really called for a very thorough accounting and assessment and analysis uh, of uh, the remains that these institutions hold and, and, and what their plans are going forward. So how are they, I mean, have any of these institutions fully responded to that letter and provided all of that information? Because I would imagine that would take a little bit of time to compile. It did. They all did. They were actually given um, 60 days to reply. Um, and one of the things that I always um, stuck with me was that letter, um, I think the the aides to the lawmakers um, pressed on how much do institutions take into account traditional knowledge from tribes um, in making their decisions and oral histories that tribes provide as evidence that they are connected to the ancestors that the institutions have taken. Um, I think for many years, um, and you know, Berkeley, for example, is an institution that acknowledges that they, for too many years, um, dismissed that knowledge and instead favored um, like the rigor of science of absolute evidence, which is not how the law was written. The law accounted for the fact that you could not know everything about ancestors that were taken um, really so recklessly in, in history. Um, and so that was interesting. You know, I think for, I'll just add to that, I think a lot of, of institutions are saying the, um, at least to the point of view of advocates for NAGPRA are saying the right thing now. I think our work as reporters is to hold them to account on those answers. You know, I think, for example, Trevor, the law requires that institutions do take into account traditional knowledge. And so Harvard, I think, is an institution that did say, of course, they are doing that now. Um, but yet, I think we told a story after those letters, um, after that process with senators had played out of how uh, Harvard um, at least in the past, had dismissed this knowledge from the point of view of the tribes. And what sort of impact does that have? What sort of lasting 
um, harm or hurt that that um, gives to a community when an institution does that. Mary, I think a big question our listeners probably have right now is, whose job is it to enforce repatriation compliance? Because, you know, the, the law is more than 30 years old, and yet apparently all these institutions were able to delay or just stalwart efforts for repatriation. I mean, who's who's the watchdog here? And how is that oversight performed? Is it consistent? And, uh, and how much of it is just based on the institution's voluntary compliance? A lot of it is. You know, even the numbers we report is, is um, self-reported data from the institutions. And so we're always kind of careful with our language to say about or um, at least um, because the numbers can't be exact. We would guess that there are more ancestors than the data, federal data shows. Um, Who enforces it? That comes from the national, inside the National NAGPRA program within the Interior Department. Um, They do have an investigator who, will look into complaints. We've been told that it's really, um, they'll, they'll pursue investigations or, or, or decide whether to pursue one, um, but they have, to receive, um, they have to receive a complaint first or an, an allegation of noncompliance um, directly from somebody before okay. they'll, they'll do it, yeah. All right, got it, got it. So DOI is ultimately that overseer. Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It's more than 30 years old. Uh, How effective is it? What are your thoughts? Give us a call. 1-800-996-284. A new series featuring a Native American superhero is now available for streaming. Menominee actress Alakwa Cox heads up a cast of native talent in the Marvel show Echo. We'll hear from stars and others involved in the production on the next Native America Calling. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about some successes and continued challenges in repatriation efforts. The federal law that applies to the repatriation of ancestral remains has new, stronger compliance language. Why is repatriation important to you, to your community, to your people? Let us know. 1-800-996-2848. That number is 1-800-996-2848. Our first guest today, Mary Huditz, is an investigative reporter with ProPublica, and her reporting is a major focus of our show today with regard to some of these recent uh, changes with regard to the way NAGPRA is implemented uh, at museums and institutions and also with regard to, to tribal communities and others who seek repatriation. And Mary, I think it's really important when we do these kinds of shows, it's very easy to kind of get lost in the policies and the laws But let's put a a personal element to it, because 
For you as a native person reporting on this topic, I imagine that was challenging in some way. What important lessons did you learn along the way? Um, my, maybe one of the biggest is um, to choose your colleagues wisely um, and, and to really be thankful for the ones who understand and are dedicated to, to covering um, issues in a sensitive way, especially this one, especially I think it's you write about our ancestors. It's, um, you can't take that lightly. Um, and you can't do it halfway. Um, and other than that, I, I also think um, being able to speak with people who have worked on repatriation for many years, who work in their community, um, who may not get a lot of attention and who know their traditions, to have had those conversations and that time with them and to be able to constantly touch base with them during my reporting um, is just, that's probably one of the best experiences I'll ever, ever have. Okay. And now moving forward, Mary, any remaining challenges that your reporting has identified? Where do you go now? Oh, there are so many. Um, but uh, I think I mentioned earlier that now is a time when um, institutions kind of know they've sort of, they're at least talking differently about repatriation. Um, many are making promises um, to, to do better. And so the work of us or the reporters who have also pursued this topic in the last year is to hold them accountable to that. All right. Let's take our first caller of the day, Chanupa, who is listening on Keeley Radio in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean, and, and thank you for this subject today. You know, the lady, Mary. Mary, this is directly to you because you're doing some investigative work. My people brought some artifacts and some remains back here to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Right up the road from uh, here at the Keeley Radio listening area is our sacred site when they massacred Bigfoot and his people. And one of the things that the military had done, they took a lot of the artifacts from our people. And one of the things that we don't ever talk about is that we're not supposed to disturb the dead, okay? They say... So that law has to be applied very strict because during um, the time when um, the, the NAGPRA was created, the repatriation, we had lost bird return to Pine Ridge. Okay, she was buried, and the people that brought her back, they died. So we're not supposed to have any means with that. So I'm very confident that this young lady pursuing this investigation needs to look at how the Caucasian race, you don't ever hear of Native people digging up General Custer, George Washington, or anything like that. But it's always the white man. So this is a beautiful subject, and Wopilatanka for Mary doing her investigative work and many others that are producing. And thank you for a big topic. Sean, from Pine Ridge. Ha-ho! <laughs> Ha-ho! We thank you, too, Chanupa. Really appreciate that call. And uh, Mary, our, our caller, Chanupa, he raises some interesting observations, some interesting insights. Uh, what are your thoughts with regard to just some of these cultural differences, I think, between the way non-natives view human remains and, and some of this cultural history and, uh, as opposed to Native people? Yeah, I think that is sort of one of the reasons 
it's taken so long. There's been this fight by science. Um, some scientists, science is also changing um, to have kept these ancestors. The thing is, um, you know, as journalists, I also want to thank very much the caller for his comment. Um, you know, as journalists, I think we try to find the truth. Um, we don't take a side, but we, we do pursue the truth. Um, and the thing about this is we're reporting on a law, and the law does recognize um, the human rights of Native people to have a say over the treatment of their ancestors. That is, that is the spirit of NAGPRA. Um, and so that had really guided us. Um, you know, of course, Native people sought the passage of this law. So, um, you know, I think that work, the law itself, well, there's different maybe views on culturally on um, treatment of the deceased. I think um, the law does see Native people's rights in this area. All right, all right. Well, when I hear Ch Chanupa's call, it, 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 I want to share a quick story, an interesting story that occurred to me and my family. It just, just the other day, in fact, it was on New Year's Eve, and one of our neighbors invited us over to her home for a New Year's Eve party. And this is an, a non-Native family, really nice people, and they live just down the street from us. And we go over there, and there were kids there, and my daughter was there, and my wife was there. And she says to us, uh, the homeowner, she says, oh, I, I just want to make sure, you know, your daughter's not scared at all by the, by the skeleton we have in our closet. And I was like, oh, or in our hallway, I'm sorry, the skeleton in our hallway. And I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a skeleton. She said, yeah, I've got an old anatomical, it's a, it's a cadaver skeleton that was my grandfather's, and we keep it in the hallway. So a little while later, I go over there, and sure enough, there's this skeleton in a glass case in their hallway next to their front door. And she tells me this story that her, her grandfather, and he was a doctor, and he had this old cadaver skeleton, and they've kept it in their family all these years. And she said it was a 16-year-old woman, the bones of a 16-year-old woman. And I'm just kind of looking there, and I, I, I don't think it was a native they they were native remains. I'm sure it was like a non-native person, but they had this skeleton in their live in their foyer in the hallway for all these years. And it's like I'm just sitting there looking at it. And she's a really nice person, a really nice family. I didn't comment. I didn't pass judgment. I was like, hey, different strokes for different folks, whatever. It's their property. They've got this old cadaver that was a hundred years old. But it just really made me think like how differently some people view these types of remains than other people. Um, it just really surprised me a lot. So anyway, with that, I'm going to go ahead and move on to our, our next guest here, Shannon O'Loughlin. Again, she is the chief executive and attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs. Shannon, again, welcome. Thank you for joining us again. And you've been on the front lines of this repatriation fight for a long, long time. How pleased are you with these recent developments? I, I Thanks so much, Sean, for having me to the show again to talk about repatriation. Man, I've been working for at least 17 years um, to finally see the movement that's happened over the last couple of years. Um, I'm ecstatic. We still have a lot of work to do, but there's some good things on the road. And I, I, I don't think we could have been as successful without the ProPublica um, uh, investigation and really putting this out um, nationally in the media, in the mainstream media, uh, where people can look and see these issues. And I think it's the embarrassment, <laughs> the embarrassment that these institutions have felt 
um, uh, that has required them to get off their high horse um, and listen to us and, and finally do the right thing. So I'm really grateful for all the work that Mary and her colleagues have done on this investigation. And Shannon, if we reflect back on, on the three decades since NAGPRA was signed, I mean, how big overall was this last year? Do you think you've seen or we've seen more progress just within the last year or so than than many, many previous years? Uh, absolutely. As, uh, and I think that progress includes, um, you know, um, museum, uh, museums building positive relationship with Native, Native nations. Um, and we've also seen Native nations um, increasing their capacity in this area, and, and there's more funding now available uh, for repatriation work, and um, they have also been more active because of that additional funding uh, that's been coming through their doors. Now, one institution that made a big, big change last year, the American Museum of Natural History. What do you know about that change and, and just their whole new approach? What really drove that? Uh, it, it's hard to say because when you look at a lot of these institutions who have been backpedaling, say, oh, yes, we're in compliance, we're in compliance, uh, we're doing the right things, yeah, sure, sure. Um, and you've got Harvard out there who's kind of their own silo uh, who who um, um, seems to always be messing things up for us. Um, and then you have the American Museum of Natural History, who over the last 30-some-odd years, they really haven't done anything um, uh, related to NAGPRA. They've, they've published uh, notices of inventory completion, but they've all been uh, – they've all determined that most of their ancestors are culturally unidentifiable. But all of a sudden last year, without fanfare, fair, without, you know, uh, saying they needed more staff or more money or anything, they actually just started doing the work and consulting with tribes, affiliating ancestors, and, and repatriating. So it's, it's not clear what exactly was the driver there, but I think what's, what's unique about how AMNH handled this is they just did the work. You know, they didn't try to make, um, you know, do all this public fanfare or press statements or having to redo their entire website like we've seen at Harvard and other institutions. Um, they just did the work. And, and I think that deserves to be, to be uh, spoken about and celebrated because that's all we need institutions to do is stop complaining about what they don't have and prioritize this federal law, this human rights law that will get us our ancestors, our ancestors' bodies back home and back in the ground to continue their journey. Shannon, a quick question. We have another caller, but I want to ask you a quick question. Um, NAGPRA, federally funded public institutions, how is Harvard, how are they subject to NAGPRA? That, that's a private institution, right? Uh, so they receive so Harvard, uh, so Peabody, Peabody Institution and Harvard is the museum. But within Harvard, there's all sorts of other departments. There's the medical college, and they've got anthropology and archaeology and all of these different departments and divisions. And as a whole, Harvard receives 
federal, even though they're a private institution, they still receive federal funds. They receive it generally through Pell Grants that they provide their students and other types of loans and, and federal funding is a academic institution. So a private institution that receives federal funds is absolutely obligated to follow NAGPRA. So that's how Harvard um, fits into the NAGPRA uh, uh, box. Thanks for that clarification, Shannon. Let's take our next caller, Jen, who is listening online in East Texas. Hello, Jen. Thank you for calling in today. Thank you so much for taking my call. I just wanted to tell you uh, that many years ago, my my time that I lived and worked in Austin, Texas, we actually, because we were a group that was well-known there, we would have people call us and tell us, you know, when they were building those high-rise high buildings and so forth, if they had found bones and need to have them reburied and repatriated. And we had special services, a special place where we buried them. And part of my job was to find funding for little monuments and so forth. And the same group now has um, worked with the Texas UT, uh, I mean, UT of Austin, and with their students that are enrolled with them, this is the Indigenous Cultures Cultures Institute. And the students who are enrolled with them in that college worked very hard and very long to prove that the bones that were on the shelves at UT needed to be properly taken care of and repatriated and given a special burial and so on and so forth. And of course, they also had to uh, answer were these people really related to the people in this group, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of technicalities that colleges can expect you to answer and so forth, but they they did repeat to you a many, many different uh, people's bones and um, and I, I, that's to be celebrated. So it, yes, like Tapaller just stated, when you have a group who knows what they're wanting to do and they know the law, the law always has to be uh, brought forth and said, you, you have to do this. And whether it takes lawyers or, or whatever, uh, you can write a law, but getting it enforced is up to people who have the right to see that they're enforced. And mm-hmm. so I think there's like all kinds of different ways of repatriation nowadays. Jen, really appreciate that call, and um, and Jen touches on this whole issue, Shannon. I, I think Mary uh, briefly mentioned it as well, but and this is one of the changes uh, with NAGPRA going forward is that this whole idea. A lot of these institutions are able to say, well, these are unidentifiable remains; we can't trace them to a specific community. But apparently, with this new wording and these new policies, uh, there's more leeway for tribes to claim uh, kinship with these remains. Is that not true? not true. <laughs> let okay, me, so let true. me clarify. Okay. NAGPRA has always been a human rights law that has required repatriation from institutions. And the basis of the law is that museums and federal agencies do not hold any legal right to our ancestors' bodies and our cultural and sacred items because they were taken without our free, prior, and informed consent. So um, the only exception to repatriation. So 
Native American collections um, throughout the country that are held by federal agencies or any institutions that have received any federal money since 1990, they have to follow NAGPRA and repatriate. And cult, cult, this culturally unidentifiable label that uh, folks, institutions have used not to repatriate, that's been completely um, uh, terminated in the new regulations. Uh, because those uh, basically institutions use that to do nothing. Mm -hmm. They didn't consult. They did nothing. They said uh, there's no affiliation. But right, all right. You need to do, all you need to do under NAGPRA is if you have geographic information and you've consulted with tribes, that is enough information to repatriate. And it always has been. So these regulations just made that crystal clear. Okay, Shannon, thank you so much for that clarification. Really appreciate it. Uh, stay with us, folks. One more break, and we'll be right back. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. You're tuned in to Native America Calling, and we are focusing on repatriation today. What kind of work is your tribe doing to make sure outside institutions are returning ancestral remains? We're at 1-800-996-2848. Let's take another caller now, and if you recognize this voice, if he sounds familiar, that's because he is familiar. He's been a guest on our show before. Clark Tenekongva, former vice chairman of the Hopi tribe, listening on station KUYI. Good morning, Clark. How are you doing? Good morning, uh, Lolma. Uh, it's a beautiful day out here. We got the snow and nice and cold, brisk day, but... What I wanted to offer to the public out there in America is that um, while being in office, one of the biggest or greatest things that I think accomplishments that our office was engaged in was uh, receiving the remains from Finland and back in 2021. Of course, it took uh, quite a long time, about 18 months to get the whole process completed, but it was first decided before COVID hit, we were supposed to go over to Finland retrieve the remains, escort them back here to um, back here to Colorado, but that you know due to COVID we couldn't do that. But we did eventually get the process done. So my point to the American museums and collection people is that, you know, why is it that they can't follow suit of a country that's not, you know, here? And of course the remains were taken back in the late 18, early 1900s by Van Gostal, but the country realized that that's something that they shouldn't have in their collections. So they brought them back, which I'm very thankful to that country, the uh, prime minister and so forth. They all came with them, escorted the, the remains. We had a large discussion, and I want to thank the my brothers out there, uh, former Governor Vio Smith of uh, Laguna, um, and also Pantia out of um, uh, Zuni and others that were there from Zia and others. But Hopi led the process, you know, of getting these remains. And I want to thank uh, Stuart Koyayamtio for leading us in that. But 
it was our office that got engaged into it. And, of course, during that whole time, I've been involved in many other perpetrations that, you know, uh, collectors or people that uh, did that illegally here in America has been stated. And Mm -hmm. it's still a prized possession of of others that don't realize what those remains are, uh, are, are to us, how important they are as far as our ancestors and even the artifacts that they take, you know, and, in one instance, we did that down in southern Arizona. Was that I don't know why this guy had the um, the, the part of, of wanting to only collect the skulls, the heads, and poor thing. You know, when we got them, it was nothing but skulls of, of females, males, and even children that we got. But we properly uh, re, uh, redid that internment back into the land. Oh, but geez. some of these things that I got experience with and was. Uh, uh, you know, thankfully involved in it, and, and they're there now. But yet, you know, we as Native Americans are always fighting an uphill battle. Even the law has been in existence since 1990, and I've been, like I say, involved in a lot of those repatriations along with our cultural preservation office out here. All right. And one of the last thing that I want to leave is that, you know, there is uh, a set of flutes that is Hopi, but why University of Arizona still does not want to just, you know, uh, kindly give it back to our people because that is still something part of our societies out here in Hopi. Thank you. Well, Clark, do me a favor. Hold hold on a second. I appreciate you calling because you raised this whole issue of international repatriation. And, of course, NAGPRA is not going to apply with regard to, to foreign countries and foreign governments. So maybe if you would just walk us through that process a little bit of, of how you worked with Finland and any of these other countries. Okay. The process started out by the, the country realizing that um, the laws here were uh, something that they shouldn't have. And of course, um, back then it was a, um, uh, for people that were collecting those back in uh, some of the sites in, in Colorado, they came here uh, under the, uh, thought that that was something that's going to be valuable, and which it was at that time. So Ben Gustav ended up taking it first back east, uh, which was mentioned like areas like Harvard and all. And they come to realize that they could be prosecuted here in America for it. So rather than keeping it here, they took the remains and then took it back to their motherland of Finland. And that's where they gave it to the king and queen of that country. And then as time progressed, they looked into the laws and they says, you know, these don't belong with us. Mm-hmm. They don't belong. They need to be displayed here in museums. They need to be, um, you know, where they properly belong. But it took us a long time from about um, early on into my administration, about 2018, all the way into 2021 to get those remains back here. But also uh, also the, the part was that um, at that time, uh, President Trump was involved in it. But of course, he wanted to make a political issue out of it and ended up you know, going on national news about it, uh, greeting the people from there and, and all that. But as far as Native people, we don't look at it as something like that. It's something that we uh, respect who they are and what they were there for. And so we did attend the uh, celebration, that's what they call it, in, uh, at the White House. 
rather right. than that, we were simple people out here, and we as the uh, group decided that it's best that we stay out here, get the remains, and get it to the process. But that's the reason why it took such a long time. They knew the laws and so forth, but yet it's a country outside of the United States, which they knew NAGPRA really didn't apply to them, but through the help of the FBI and other agencies from uh, the, the, the American government, we were able to get them and then properly intern them to their place of origin. Okay. All right. Wow. The FBI involved too. Clark, uh, thanks again for calling in. This is all great information. And Shannon, I want to go back to you because, uh, of course, we've been talking about universities and all these American institutions, but of course, uh, lots of remains, native remains, ancestral remains overseas. Do you see any of this recent momentum here in the U.S. with regard to NAGPRA? Will that have any impact or effect internationally? That's a really good question, and I'm so grateful for the uh, the, the vice chair coming in and and, and talking about uh, what happened in Finland. Um, uh, international repatriation. Uh, Native nations have been working on uh, international repatriations for for decades. Uh, I what this does, what NAGPRA does, is help create um, some best practices in the museum industry that is bleeding into um, international forums. And so we've, we've seen countries uh, that have been examining their colonial histories. And uh, many institutions in, in European countries are owned by the country. So they're like state museums, so they're uh, public institutions. And, and they're considering uh, repatriation mostly as it relates to African tribal peoples. And so we're seeing um, increases in repatriations to um, tribes in Nigeria and other places. Um, uh, and, and we're still seeing uh, repatriations happening uh, from international institutions back to Native nations. It's still kind of few and far between. And part of it is because they've all been these kind of one-off issues. And what the association is involved in doing right now is really creating a more holistic strategy uh, where we can look at uh, a particular country who has laws and other policies that will help us be more successful to leverage repatriation requests. And uh, we're researching their institutions and their collections so we can build coalitions of tribes that are affiliated with those institutions' collections. And uh, really trying to build um, larger repatriation requests uh, so that we can uh, do some best practices and, and increase the momentum of our presence um, in these international institutions because they don't often talk to Native peoples. They don't often get the opportunity to mm-hmm. talk to Indigenous peoples from the U.S. So I think um, um, all of this work on NAGPRA is is going to have a positive effect in the long run. But international repatriation, bottom line, is a, a much longer and more arduous process simply because uh, those governments don't have um, a government-to-government relationship with the tribes here in the U.S. All right. We've got time for one more caller, Claude. 
who is listening to Keeley Radio in Rosebud, South Dakota. Hello, Claude. Hello. Good morning. I'll be here anyway. Because <laughs> Lakota, um, I have a quick, quick question. Um, a while ago, there were skulls that were collected at the National Museum, and uh, Wilma Mankiller helped um, the uh, Cheyenne collect the. Um, they were repatriating the bodies at the Sand Creek Massacre, and they found that. Uh, all the bodies had no heads. And so uh, through Freedom of Information Act, she found out that there was a study called a Native uh, American uh, Cranial Study. I think that was in 1864 where uh, they decapitated uh, Native people's heads and and collected them. And there's a big concert building in D.C., uh, I, I heard that half of it is filled with skulls, and the other half is is our sacred pipes and bundles. Do you know anything about that? Thank you. All right. Yeah, um, Shannon, please respond. A cranial study, eighteen sixty four, skulls but no bodies. What do you know about that? Yeah, I'm 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 not sure. I'm trying to recollect in my um, uh, over um, uh, overactive brain here. Um, so in 1964, that was pre-NAGPRA. So this work that was being done um, uh, to repatriate those ancestors was before NAGPRA came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not sure which institution they came from because the National Museum of the American Indian hadn't been formed yet in the in the 60s and 70s. It, it wasn't developed until 1988 and 89. Um, when the Smithsonian Institution took over the National Museum or created the National Museum of the American Indian from the George Gustav High American Indian Museum in New York City that had um, just uh, an enormous collection. And there's so many horrific stories that come out of that institution such as this. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all, but at, at, at right now, I don't have the answer. I don't know if those okay. um, ancestors, right. um, the final remains, have been repatriated. Well, let me, Mary, let's bring you back into the conversation. I'd like you to respond because, uh, I mean, that was a, a big part of your reporting is that in many instances, these remains were being used for these DNA samples and these biological type studies. So. Are you familiar with this cranial study that our caller Claude mentioned or similar types of studies? I'm not sure if I'm familiar specifically um, with the scope of what he's talking about. Um, I didn't know if he said 1964 or 1864. I thought it was 1864. Yeah, I'm not sure. If it was 1864, I think what I know, because a lot of our reporting was also deep in the history of it all. Um, So in the 1860s, sort of, or even before then, at but the root of a lot of these collections was um, a man named Samuel Morton who had embraced a ra- like a racist theory of science where um, the size of people's heads could determine like racial hierarchies. Um, and, and science embraced that. You know, there was also like um, our, ancestors, and our ancestors were not viewed as human, uh, I think, when they were by scientists, when they were um, excavated. I think the thing that is remarkable 
to me is that um, a lot of the what Samuel Morton spurred and the collections that happened through the establishment of, of major, major museums in this country now um, is that the research continued. It evolved over the decades or over the generations of different scientists to, to where we're now, you know, there's more ethics in place, but DNA was still, I mean, just maybe is still being extracted from ancestors over the objections of tribes. So it's the same, often the same ancestors, um, but th that the science has changed. And that's a huge issue with NAGPRA now um, that I think we'll, we'll hopefully continue to discuss um, moving forward, even as repatriations happen. The other thing he mentioned um, was the um, repatriations that happened or, or um, repatriations related to Sand Creek. And I know that um, from my reading that a lot of the museum, uh, the movement behind NAGPRA actually came from um, these early visits that um, tribes Pawnee and um, Cheyenne made to to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History um, that spurred a law first, specifically for the Smithsonian, which was followed quickly by NAGPRA. Um, All right. But I, I wish that I don't know more about his specific question. Okay. All right. No worries. Thank you, Mary. Shannon, we've got about a minute before we've got to wrap up the show. Uh, tell us about this grant, this grant that uh, your organization received and, and how it's going to apply to repatriation. Yeah, this is a um, thank you so much for giving me some time to talk about that. Um, so with all of this increase in repatriation work that's being done and, and more um, knowledge about it in the public, uh, we were approached by the Mellon Foundation um, for all our work that we've been doing in repatriation. And we're able to obtain a $1 million, $1 million grant from the Mellon Foundation over the next two years. And as part of that grant, what the association is going to be doing, uh, because there really isn't lack of, of comprehensive training and practice development that's absolutely in line with the law. Um, there's other um, uh, trainings that are going on out there, and as we've ex explored those, we've seen uh, then be extremely problematic. So we'll be developing comprehensive curriculum, not only on NAGPRA, but about, about looting and trafficking, about how to protect sacred places, and about international repatriation. And that comprehensive curriculum is going to be turned into um, online training that will right. be available for free. <laughs> okay, Shannon, I'm sorry. We're going to have to wrap up the show now. But big thank you to Shannon and Mary for joining us today. Hope you'll join and tune in to Native America Calling again tomorrow. We're going to have a great show for you. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.